All right, Acts chapter 4. Let's do this. Let's stand for the reading of God's words. Acts chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 32 through verse 16 of chapter 5. Follow along in your Bibles if you have those, or follow along on the screen as I read out loud. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were given, giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. But when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter, the, the feet of those, Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest of them dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they even carried out to the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God. May it stand forever. You can be seated. Well, that's quite the emotional transition, isn't it? Praying for a dear sister to people dying in the foyer. Uh, we spent a couple of weeks, um, and I apologize for the, the, the choppiness of where we've been uh, this spring, but we, well, to give you a review, we have spent a couple weeks um, looking at, we're looking at chapters 3 through uh, 6, or 3 through 7, as we're looking at the early church and how the early church continued to grow and advance despite some incredible challenges that they faced. And we spent three weeks looking at external challenges, persecution that was coming upon the church from those outside who hated the church, hated Christians, hated Jesus, 
and how the church responded to those things. Well, this week we begin what will be a couple weeks looking at the different, a different type of challenge, and perhaps um, a challenge that uh, has caused the problem of church um, much more problems, has stunted our growth far more than any persecution, and that is the internal trials of the church. The church grows, the church grows, and this is an amazing thing. It's see, we see here in Acts chapter 4 and 5 that the church continues to grow and it continues to strengthen even when people are struck dead in the foyer. That's a pretty amazing thing. But there are inter- whenever when there are internal challenges and trials and sins in the church, but even in that, what we are going to see here is how God, by his grace and his mercy, continues to extend and expand and develop and strengthen his church. Now, internal trials and struggles, as we're going to see, is nothing new to the modern church. We know it well. If you have been in church for much time in your life, you're going to, lo and behold, run into people who do some significantly awful things. In my lifetime, in some of the churches that I've been a part of, in one particular church out in which uh, there was two couples that led worship, and the couples swapped spouses. That was a bad day at church when that came out. Been in another place, this is actually my own father's church, in which one, the youth pastor in the church was sleeping with three women in the church. It's a bad day when that came out. Pastors, church leaders have been known to embezzle money, to lie, and for so long, this has been what has stunted the growth of the church. But what we find today and what we want to see in this passage is how by God's grace, despite the fact that there are sinners in God's church, that by his grace, the church will continue to grow, that continue to be strengthened, and the gospel will advance even despite us. It's interesting, the grace of God, I think, is a significant theme that we're going to be looking at this morning and how God pours out that grace, and that, but it comes in a different package than we would normally think of grace coming in. It says in verse 32, the grace was upon, or verse 33, grace was upon all of them. But what we normally think of as the Lord's grace is we think of these positive blessings, these wonderful things that he gives us, financial blessings, and that is going to be part of it. But there's also some difficult blessings that he brings into your life, like discipline. And so this morning, what is the grace that God brings, provides to the church, that even in the midst of our sins, even in the midst of internal struggles, Allow the church to continue to grow and be strengthened. I'm going to look, give you three, three things that God provides in his grace to the church. First is this, is he provides for the needy. God is providing for the needy by his grace. Verse 34 through 37, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to as many as had need. The challenge of what the early church was facing was that in the midst of the persecution was that the, um, in the life of Israel at this time, if you were a widow or if you were an orphan child, that their welfare system ran through the temple. That the means by which they did mercy, if you could needed bread or food, the means where you got that was the temple. But what widows and orphans and others who were downcast and out and sick and not provided for What they were facing was, if they came to know Jesus, if they came to join the church, many of them were being kicked out of the temple. They were being ostracized from the temple, and this is what many people around the world experience. If you were to go to a particularly um, uh, strict Muslim country, and many of these places where if people become believers in Jesus, 
become Christians, their parents, their families will disown them. They will be removed from the family inheritance, rejected from the family social life, rejected from the family business, and will not have a means of supporting themselves because they'll essentially be blackballed for their faith. And that's what was going on here. And so the early church had to find a way in order to care for these folks. And what we see here is that the grace of God had been poured out and was understood so wonderfully and so beautifully that the Christians in the church understood the resurrection so wonderfully that they said, you know what? I'm not living for this life. And so what would they do? They started selling their property. They started selling their homes. They started giving away their possessions in order to care for those who were hurting Now, what must be seen here and what is the difference between law and duty, which is simply what religion provides for you, and what Christianity, what Jesus provides for you, is that it was not, you did not have to do this. You did not have to do this. This was not compulsory. Peter actually makes this clear to Ananias and Sapphira. This is not a communistic communal system necessarily where to enter it, you have to sell all your possessions and give it and put it at the feet of the apostles. They were doing that. But they were not being forced to do that. Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, the land was yours. You could do with it what you pleased. Even after you sold it, the proceeds from the sale, you could do with it as you pleased. So the issue here is not, the issue here is, what we have here is that what we want to do is we want to give out of a love of what God has done for us, out of his grace and his mercy. And just as an aside, this is important, that Christians are not forced to tithe. We are called to tithe. We are compelled to tithe by the love and the grace of Jesus. But you are not forced to tithe. In fact, as a warning and as a, as a word of wisdom, one of the great signs of a cult is that a high authoritarian system where in order to join that body and that community, you have to give up all of your possessions. Let's take one of the largest cults in our country, the, the Mormon Church, or what is known as the Latter-day Saints, This is simply from their website, lds.org. It says this, how their tithing system came about, which you're required, you're compelled to give a tithe in their church. It said this, in 1838, and again, this is from the LDS website, the Lord gave the law of tithing, and here's the context. The church this time was in grave financial difficulty because they did not have a revenue law. It was under these circumstances that an answer was given to the supplication of the prophet Joseph, Joseph Smith. O Lord, show unto thy servants, he prayed, how much thou requirest requirest of the properties of thy people for a tithe. And the Lord answered, Verily, thus saith the Lord, I require all their surplus property to be put into the hands of the bishop of my church in Zion for the building of mine house and for the laying of the foundation of Zion and for the priesthood and for the debts of the presidency of my church. Wasn't it convenient that Joseph Smith heard from the Lord that in order to be part of their church... You had to give right at the time that they were running out of money. Therefore, it says this, if many man, they goes on in their doctrines and covenants, if any man shall take of the abundance which I have made and impart not his portion according to the law of my gospel unto the poor and needy, he shall with the wicked lift up his eyes in hell, being in torment. In other words, according to their doctrine, if you don't tithe, you go to hell. By the way, it says that that's because of the gospel. That is called an anti-gospel. And they go on to say this in the same article, in, the same, in their doctrines and covenants from this scripture, it is apparent that tithing is not a free will offering, but tithing is a debt which everyone owes to the Lord. 
And they even say this, that pay, the payment of tithing is also worthwhile, direct quote, as fire insurance. This is not by force. And what we see is that God, by his grace, by revealing his mercy and his love to a people who realize that Christ has spilled his blood to buy me out of hell. He has spent his blood to make me his. That that grace and that mercy compels me, not out of compulsion, not saying you have to do this or you go to hell, but that love makes me go, I, I want to sell my property. I want to give to the needy and to the broken. What you do with money and possessions declares loudly what sort of community you are, King's Chapel. And the statement made by the early church's practice was clear and definite. No wonder they were able to give such a powerful testimony to the resurrection. Because they believed that life was not about what you possess here. And so they could give it away. So the gospel continues to advance and the church continues to grow because God, by his grace, is providing for the needy through his people. That's the first way in which we see God's grace being poured out upon them. The second, though, is a surprise. So the gospel continues to advance and the church continues to grow because God pours out his grace by doing what? Not just providing for the needy, but judging the phonies. Judging the phonies. What is, I, I had a, um, my, the, the pastor that I served under, who was the senior pastor of the church I was previously, um, had, was a youth pastor as well at an earlier day. And he had, he told a story one time of uh, one of the students came up to him and asked him this question, which I think is a brilliant question. The student said this, what is the deal with God's random smite function? These places in the New Testament, I mean the Old Testament particularly, where things are, seem to be going along just fine, and then all of a sudden God decides to like strike someone dead. You have various stories. Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire to the Lord. Uzzah, Uzzah's worshiping God, and he's helping bring back the Ark of the Covenant back to the temple, and he stretches out his hand to keep the, the Ark from falling, and he touches it, and he strikes dead right there. Dathan, Korah, Abiram, the earth opens up and swallows their family. Ahaziah's captain brings men out and fire drops down and consumes them. These are rough scenes. These places where God seems to randomly smash and toast people in the Old Testament. This, of course, now we're used to this, right? Because this is the Old Testament gods. But we're in the New Testament now. We're on the other side of Jesus. So God doesn't do this anymore, right? 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 Wrong. Wrong. You see, we have a God who doesn't change. He is the Alpha and the Omega, and his character is always the same, and he is a holy God is where we started this morning. What was wrong? Why does God judge this couple so severely? Well, it says what? They held back. Now, listen, you're looking at this and you're going, now that sounds pretty bad. God's going to like you know, just randomly smite people in the church because they don't sell everything they have and give it to the church? Well, that's not what's going on here, right? They hold back. That's not in and of itself what's wrong, is it? Because Peter says, this is not compulsory. You didn't have to do this. What was wrong? What was their sin? The issue here is that they are liars. They are hypocrites and they are phonies. And they held back but represented themselves as having given the whole pie. You see, there is a juxtaposition being laid out here by Luke in Acts. There's Barnabas, who is the great example of what grace-born generosity does. 
We have Barnabas. It says it in verse 36. His name was actually Joseph, who they ended up giving a nickname, Barnabas, which means son, son of encouragement. He was a Levi, a native of Cyprus, and he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Wonderful Barnabas. This is where we first introduced to him. He'll later travel with Paul on missionary journeys. So one, one pastor, one commentary said that Barnabas is a sermon in shoes. He has the great description of what it looks like to be a generous and encouraging Christian. He has given great recognition for this great gift of generosity for the church. Everyone in the church loves Barnabas, right? They give him a cool nickname, son of encouragement. Uncle Joe, not, that, not Stalin, a much better version of Uncle Joe, who all the kids love because he's out handing out 20s to all the needy kids in the church. And that's great. The little old ladies love him. All the girls want to marry him, and all the guys want to be him. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they're at church, and they're going, he's, he's getting some pretty cool recognition. And so they concoct a plan to try to get that same kind of recognition, that praise and adulation, yet not having to give quite like Barnabas gave. What do you see here? Their, their sin, their hypocrisy is compounded by the fact that it was premeditated. It was a lie that they planned. It was a strategy. In fact, verse 2, it says that, that, he, that uh, Ananias planned this with his wife's full knowledge. They planned on it. They planned to sin. They wanted to look like Barnabas without having to give like Barnabas. They wanted to look more generous than they really were. They wanted the apostles in the church that they were thinking that they were wonderful people. They wanted external religious approval. They loved the praise of men. And so what they do? They lived out of a lie. They are phonies. They are Christian posers. What we see here is it was not their imperfection that did the men. It was not their lack of willingness to give everything that did the men. It was their prideful deception. And this is so much like us, isn't it? We become masters of this, and it happens so quickly. Listen, I'm going to take some low-hanging fruit on this, but there's, it goes so deep. I mean, if a person becomes a Christian, they enter into a body like this, and just like any kind of organization, any kind of body of people, you begin to see like... Oh, okay, if you want to be like everybody else, you dress like this, and you talk like this, and you learn a certain vocabulary, and you do this during worship, and you don't do that, and you begin to learn these things, and, and, and so you begin to actually put on this posturing of what it looks like, and you begin to share, and you begin to say things in prayer like everybody else, like you breathe like kind of breathily when you say grace, grace, because that's what you learn to do when you pray, and you extend the O oh in hope, Lord, just give us hope. Listen, we want to feel like the Spirit is filling us. And so we come to worship services and we raise our hands and we say, oh man, the music was so great today. The Spirit was present. And that's great. We want to feel the excitement of the Spirit, but we actually, more than, if you're actually experienced the Spirit's presence in your life, you don't want that because that kind of radically changes your life. And He asks you to do things that are hard. You see, if the Spirit of God actually falls in a worship service, radical things begin to happen, like people selling their houses and giving to the poor. Yeah, we put on a phony facade. I was doing a premarital counseling uh, uh, in the last couple of years uh, with a young couple, and they were, they love Jesus. Both are Christians. And one of the things I do there in the very first meeting is I, I, I just got to check in and just go, how are y'all doing sexually? You stay pure. I know it's difficult once you're engaged, this jacked up system we have in our society where you have all the difficulties and challenges of being married, but not a whole lot of the benefits. And they said, no, we're really struggling with that. We've, we've, we've fallen all, all over the place. We're staying, spending the night with each other, sleeping together. 
they confessed that it was a real trouble. And so I, I asked the, the, the man, I said, are, are, do you have accountability? And, and he has lots of Christian friends. I, I know, I've been involved in his, very intimately involved in his life. And the answer was no. And I asked him, why? You have friends. You have friends who can ask you about this, who can hold you accountable to this. And his answer was this, because he didn't want his friends to think any less of him. It's a facade. It's a facade. What does this tell us about this insidious nature of sin? They are, they are judged, not because they didn't give it all, but because they lied, because they, they were phonies, they are hypocrites. This tells us that we think sin is being doing bad things, like cursing, gossiping, embezzling money, having sex out of wedlock. Sin is murdering someone, it's adultery. The Bible says all those things are sin, that's true. But it also says that it is sin when we do good things for the wrong reason. That our, mo- our motivations are jacked up. What is wrong with Ananias and Sapphira is the heart desires behind even their partial gift. They want to look good. We want to look righteous. They are ultimately engaged in what? Love for the Lord? No, it's self-love. Self-love that is a foundation of self-righteousness. It is about self-glory instead of the glory of God's. And so you ask yourself, now this is the difficulty and the challenge of being a Christian is you go, well, Pastor, what in the world is a good deed then? If I... If I buy a wheelchair for a, for a young child who desperately needs it, is that a good deed? Well, it depends. It depends. For the story of, of one pastor who was um, saying this very similar type of, saying that your motive matters, and he had a man come up to him after church, and the man was quite irate, because this man had volunteered an enormous amount of hours for the Special Olympics throughout the year. And he goes, I volunteer for the Special Olympics every year. I give hundreds of hours to that organization. You can't tell me that isn't a good deed. And the pastor said, well, it depends. Why do you do it? And the man says, well, because it makes me feel good. Bingo. Bingo. But so often, what looks so like compassion, what looks like kindness, what looks like all of our wonderful goodness is us just serving us with our outward self-righteousness. So I feel good. And know what? This is offensive to God. You know why? Because this is directly contrary to the gospel. It's an assault on the gospel. It's an assault on why Jesus came. If you can make yourself righteous, why did Jesus come? Why did he die? Why did he shed his blood? You see, Ananias and Sapphira are seeking self-glory through self-righteousness, whereas the gospel says that God is glorified and that we indeed are glorified through what? Not our righteousness, through Jesus' righteousness. Romans 1 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the righteousness of God. It is the righteousness of God given to me. You see, most American Christians, they believe this. They believe that we produce our own righteousness. And if we do enough righteousness, enough good things, then God will think well of us, and everybody else around us will think well of us, and then we could die happily. That's not how the gospel works. Romans says we don't produce any righteousness, but God produces the righteousness and gives it to us. And to say that, man, I'm trying to live this life where I look righteous based on my own deeds and everybody loves me and likes me for that reason, man, that is, that is a direct assault to why Jesus came. It's a direct assault to the gospel. You might be saying right now, you're going, okay, okay, good, good. We don't have to sell everything and give everything and God won't smite us. But then if you think a little bit deeper, you might go, wait a second, I think this is even more of a problem. God doesn't care that they didn't give their whole property. 
He's upset and he judges them for their false motivations. That's even more scary. That's not very comforting at all, is it? Perhaps you're thinking, wait, I thought that Christians don't get this kind of treatment anymore. I thought God was a kinder, gentler. This is God version 2.0. He doesn't have those judgmental, wrathful bugs like he did in the, uh, the old story. And some questions, and I, I was trying to think of some of the questions that I think a natural Christian would ask. And one is this. Do you, do you think Ananias and Sapphira were Christians? The answer, I think, is I don't know. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And yet, it seems like the Holy Spirit is there. The answer is, we can't know whether they're Christians or not. It doesn't say. And perhaps Luke makes it unclear for a reason. Because I think what he's trying to do is warn us. And we'll get to that in a second. But in the second, I have a second question I think a lot of us would ask. Is, okay, if we're not sure about Ananias and Sapphira, that, that doesn't give us the answer to the next question, which is, does God judge and, and treat Christians like this anymore? And here's the answer. The answer is Yes. But it's going to take some explanation, some hedging to understand this rightly in the right context. So bear with me for just a second. Romans 8.1 says this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you give yourself to Christ, all punishment for your sins, past, present, future, has fallen on Christ. You are no longer punished for your sins. God is not seeking to destroy you for your sins. This means that we cannot and should not make any assumptions, immediate assumptions indeed, that whenever you see suffering or sickness or difficulty enter into someone's life, that you go, well, it's because they sinned. The Bible talks about this in numerous places. And so, yes, we we have no condemnation, but what the Bible talks about no condemnation, what it means is you don't go to hell. It means that you are not separated from God for all of eternity. It means that you don't live in eternal damnation away from him in an awful place. That's what it means is no condemnation. It means your sin is no longer upon you, and you're treated as the full wrath of God as your sin deserves. That's what no condemnation means. But there are earthly temporal consequences. There are earthly temporal consequences because God disciplines those he loves. Turn your Bibles with me to... 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 32. You might think it's an odd passage, but I think you'll get it in just a second as I read it. This is about the Lord's Supper and the warning about coming to the Lord's Supper. I'll pick up in verse 27. It says this, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now what is Paul saying here in 1 Corinthians? Paul's saying that God judges those who eat and drink the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Now, I'm, gonna have, I'm not going to go into what that means. That's for a different sermon when we actually get to that text. But this judgment comes with it, that if you eat in an unworthy manner, which means you come with unrepented sin, not, not rightly thinking about who God is and all the, the greatness of what Jesus has done for you, but that this judgment, this discipline of God, actually comes with physical ramifications. It says that some of you are sick, and some of you are weak, and some of you have even died because you've taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Now this is, do you understand in the last, the last verse there? He says you receive judgment, but it's so you, you are saved from the final condemnation. 
There are two different, this is discipline versus punishment. This is discipline versus eternal wrath. Those are two very different things. Discipline, as a parent, when I discipline my child, do I want to kill him? Well, actually, I might, because I'm simple. But, but as a, if I'm in a good, loving moment, when I discipline my child, I'm actually doing it for his good. I want to give life to him. But if you're abusive, if your punishment, wrath, is to destroy someone, that's the difference of what is going on here. And the answer here is that, yes, Christians, we can actually receive physical discipline from the Lord. There is actually the chance that you could be sick. And listen, I... I was talking to somebody last week about this fact that my stress and so much of the ways that in my lack of faithfulness and the way I try to control my life and have a success idol, in the last couple of years, what he was giving me is I had all these uh, psychosomatic symptoms that my chest and my stomach was constantly upset. I was sick. At 19 years old, I was walking away from the Lord in many ways. Oddly enough, I was a youth pastor at a church, but that's not the here nor there. But I was walking, I was rebelling against the Lord, and God in his grace and his mercy, I herniated two discs in my back. I was a college basketball player because of the stress of my life, psychosomatic, the tension in my back, God's blessing, his discipline upon me. God actually brings discipline upon those he loves. Now, this brings us back to the issue at hand because we're talking about God's grace. How in the world is disciplining us like this God's grace? How is judgment like this gracious? Well, verse 6 and verse 11 tell us, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. You see, this was gracious. This was gracious in that it brings a lesser judgment in the hopes of saving people, or maybe even saving large groups of people who witnessed this from a larger and eternal judgment. John Piper says this, the reason that Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead is not because this happens to all hypocrites. For example, it doesn't happen to Simon the magician in Acts 8. But the reason they dropped dead is to give a stunning warning to the whole church. You see what happens? What's the response when God does this? The whole church is burdened with great fear. They they, they realize again, once again, they are reminded that we serve a holy God, that sin matters. And what they also have to realize is that we desperately need the gospel. You see, God may bring suffering and difficulties to people to wake them up. And in fact, he may actually do something drastic in churches to wake churches up. To say, enough of this. Stop putting up with this. Get rid of this sin. Be done with this. And get on the track of righteousness to wake us up in order to save us. The severity of God's discipline is to warn us of the seriousness of living a lie. The seriousness of a premeditated, bold-faced, brazen sin. And this warning is not just for the church in Jerusalem. It's for us as well. You're meant to read this and go, I think that scares me a little bit. And it ought to. Because it shows you the depths of sin. Heed the warning that comes with Ananias and Sapphira. Now, some may say, look at you and say, listen, this seems to undercut grace. No, no, it doesn't. You see, God is using all the arrows in his arsenal to point to one place, the gospel. He is using blessings to say, look at the blessings that you have in my son. Look back and rely on the gospel. And he's using cursings and discipline and difficult things and suffering that's not even ready to sin to say, we want Jesus more than anything else. It all, yes, even the difficult things, the discipline that God brings in your life, brings you, is brought into your life in order to point you back to the goodness of graciousness of God. This is meant to turn you back to the, to, the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see that such a warning. And taking di- seriously the discipline, God points us 
here is pointing us back to the story of the gospel. You see, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, what do we have? We have two frauds taking up glory for themselves with half-hearted generosity. We have two frauds pre-planning, premeditating how to make themselves look righteous without actually having to be righteous. But what's the story of the gospel? The story of the gospel is this. You don't, have, you, don't have, see, you don't see we have one who just does this, the opposite. In the gospel, we have an authentic Savior who lays aside glory to give up part of himself, no, all of himself, to lay himself on a cross. In the gospel, we have a Savior who is covered with our sins in the sight of the Father so that he is seen as unrighteous, so that you are seen as righteous. And guess what? Ephesians tells us that he has been planning to do this. He has been foreordaining and premeditating this redemptive act for all of eternity. That is the gospel. And the warning of this text is to say, go back to that. Stop being phonies. Stop relying on your self-righteousness. Stop putting up a facade and come and rely on the gospel of Jesus Christ once again. And when you understand this, when you understand the beauty of what the gospel offers you, that you don't, you don't have to fake it anymore. When you understand that this, it opens up to you to being willing to come out of hiding, to reveal your sins to someone, to confess, to not live in little white lies and half-truths. The gospel continues to advance and the church continues to grow because God, by his grace, judges phonies. But last, God in his grace He grows and advances his church by welcoming the broken. And this is who we got to realize who we are again. Because discipline is meant to break you. To realize who you are in the sight of God. One of the ways you shape a church, or really any organization, is who you admit and who who you leave out. Who you kick out. And what's interesting here, what do we see in Acts 5? Who's admitted? Look at verse 14 through 16. It says this, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Who's welcome into the church? Those who know that they are sick, those who know they are broken, those who are demon-possessed, and they know it, and they have no other place to go for healing. That's who's welcoming the church. And who gets kicked out? A lovely couple who are some of the biggest donors in the church. You know, there's this great irony in this text. Ananias and Sapphira, you know what their names mean? Ananias means the Lord is gracious. And Sapphira means beautiful. Listen, you might as well name these kids Isaac and Rachel. These are good Christian kids, right? They give generously to the poor. They're helping with the needy, and yet they get kicked out. One pastor put it this way. In the culture of the church, those who trumpet their own goodness, here's why they're kicked out. Those who trumpet their own goodness are not welcome. Those who come brandishing their own righteousness are not welcome. But in the church of Jesus Christ, those who come knowing they have no righteousness, they have no goodness, they are welcome. It is they who are welcome. There was a parable Jesus tells, a parable of the wedding feast, where he says, he speaks of a son who's getting married. He's got this great party. They sent out invitations to the rich and the wealthy and the famous of the world and of the community, and they all say, no. We don't want your party. We don't need your party. We're too busy with all of our good works for your party. 
And so the son says, that's it. And the father says, that's it. Go out into the highways and the byways and you find the lost and you find the broken and you wash them and you bring them in. Are you broken? Are you Ananias and Sapphira or are you those who are brought by your friends desperately needing the gospel? You see, the grace of God that welcomes the broken, this frees us, and this is your application, to confess honestly who you are. You know what is amazing about this passage? That it's in there at all. Listen, if you wanted to, wanted to get people to join your church and you're writing an account of how great that church is going, do you put this account in there? Hey, come join our church. People are dying in the foyer. God's just smiting people. Come join our church. You want smoke and lights? We got people dying. If you're a Peter... What are, you know, this is the apostles. They write the gospels. What do they put in there? They put their worst moments in there. Peter writes about how the fact that he was scared to death by a little servant girl who asked him if he's a Galilean, and he says, no, I have nothing to do with Jesus. They all, the disciples, they write, they write in their own gospels, in their own accounts of what happened, they write about how they all scared, like scared little rabbits away from Jesus when he was arrested. They put that in there. Why? Because they understand that it is not their righteousness that makes the church strong. It's the righteousness of Jesus that makes the church strong. You open the book of Acts, and one of the first counts we get, what is it? You get the account of Judas. You get an assistant pastor who's betraying the lead guy, and he goes and hangs himself. That's a tough church to be a part of. And now we read about the best-looking people in the church who own a cattle farm in Texas. They sell the cattle farm, and they only get part of the proceeds, and God says, you die. You only put this in here if you have something else to say. You see, the history of churches is, we, is that we're not honest. And yet what we find here is that they're so honest because they know what the strength of the church is. If you go to church websites, and some church websites have the history of the church. And it talks about all the wonderful things. And it talks about, you know, that this pastor did this. And at this season, this building was built. And we started this initiative. You know what they don't tell you on those websites? The pastor wasn't mentioned because he ran off with the secretary. And the church split that they had 10 years ago. Or the pastor who stole $60,000. Why is, that, is all this in here? Why is this in here in the book of Acts? Because it's not about us. It says in Acts 1.1, Luke says to Theophilus, all that God, through Jesus Christ, continues to do. See, the culture of the church, because we have not understood this, we, way too often, we hide our sins. Because we think it's our righteousness is how we're going to win the world. You know, there's an organization called Grace. It helps with people who have been sexually abused in Christian environments. One of the most worst offenders of not reporting sexual abuse are churches in in Christian organizations. In her book, This Little Light, Krista Brown recounts that after being repeatedly sexually victimized by her youth pastor, she finally gained enough courage to report the abuse to the church music minister. Upon learning of the perpetrator's identity, the music minister made young Krista promise that she would not tell anyone else about the abuse. A few weeks later, the church announced that the offending youth pastor had accepted a calling to another church. Not only did the church's silence allow an offender to escape justice and move to a new church of unsuspecting victims, but it shouted to young Krista that she was worthless and not worth protecting. Why do so many churches, they ask, 
Why do so many churches fail to do the right thing when they learn that one of their own has been accused of sexual abuse? All too often, they say at their website, all too often it's because the victimized are repeatedly overshadowed by the need to protect the righteous reputation of the church. We've got to stop pretending. It's killing us. Killing us. That's a heavy illustration. This one's sad, but a little bit funny. Some of you may remember Tammy Faye Baker. She uh, probably spent a life's salary on makeup. She was on TV. She was the wife of Jimmy Baker. They were famous televangelists for many years. And there's a story of her where she was getting her makeup on before going on a TV set. And there was a knock on the door, and it was her husband, Jim. And she, she shrieks as he comes in. And she says, don't let him in, don't let him in. I don't have my makeup on her. Her makeup dresser said, said this, it's okay, it's okay, it's just your husband. And she said this, no, 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 you don't understand. He's never seen me without my makeup on. Now, if that's true, that's just sad. But brothers and sisters, that's how the church functions. And no one has ever seen us without our makeup on. You see, the gospel gives us the freedom to tell the truth about ourselves, to come out of hiding, to not pretend anymore. We think, oh, no, we'll be disillusioned if we don't bring the sin into the light. That's completely contrary to what the Bible says. It says bring the sin into the light, and people are encouraged because they know I'm not part of a perfect church. I'm at a church where they take seriously repentance. We don't condone sin, but we don't condemn sin. We walk with people in a path of righteousness. And so honesty requires confession. And you know one of the greatest places we see confession in the Scriptures Psalm 51, right? And what happens in Psalm 51? David was a man after God's own heart, it says. Was he a man after God's own heart because he killed people? Was he a man after God's own heart because he sinned so egregiously? Why was he a man after God's own heart? He conspires to kill a friend and steal his wife. He had the perfect crime to what happened. God sends Nathan to confront him and the consequences of his sin. David is not a man after God's own heart because he did these things. And let me say... Real quickly, we have a culture, and particularly my generation, we believe in it. We want authenticity. But what that has often meant is we want to tell you about our sins that have no consequences. But that is not what God says. Authenticity means we bring our sin into the light so that we may walk a path of repentance and be held accountable. But David, so he is held accountable. And what does David do? David is not a man after God's own heart because he's just authentic. No, David's a man after God's own heart. Because what does he do? He writes a song about his sin. You know back in, 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 the, in when the David wrote this, it's, we know it as Psalm 51. Did you know they didn't have Psalm 51 was the title? Here's the title. The title was this. He published it under this title, A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. He's writing a song for the whole nation of Israel to sing about his sin. And about his confession. Now that's transparency. That's the title of the song. It's his sin. And how he was confronted. And his sin was brought into the light. David doesn't celebrate sin. What does he celebrate? Why is he a man for God's own heart? Because he celebrates the grace of God. That brings his sin to the light. And that changes him. Christ does not expect you. To come to him with perfection. But he does expect you to come to him humbly, repentantly, and honestly, which means you don't come bearing your own self-righteousness, but pleading the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness of Christ 
alone. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I was just realizing I was doing a lot of finger wagging this morning, and maybe that was the temperature of the text. And, and Lord, I pray that that is taken as warning. I pray that we would heed this. That Lord, we, we would not be a people who come into church week in and week out as phonies. That we would not put a facade that we would not hide our marital problems, but we would get accountability, we would get support, we would get community to gather around us. Lord, that we would not hide our addictions, but we would bring them into the light. Lord, whether we're in a position of leadership in this church or whether we are a little child, Lord, I, I pray for those in this room who have hidden sins, for the kids who have cheated at school this week, who have lied to their parents that they'd be willing to uncover that sin and come with tears pleading the righteousness of Christ. That men and women who've come to church this morning with hidden sins, who've come to put on a facade to play the part in the role, would lay aside that part and take up the broken one who cries out for the mercy of God. Thank you for your grace that warns us, that provides for us, and that when we repent, welcomes us home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.